All right, so welcome back to Jews and Food. All right, this is exciting. This is lesson two. And I was thinking about how to use the phrase course. It's our second course, right? Sort of like four courses, but it's within one course. Still haven't figured out how to, how to integrate that terminology. But what I do want to do is um, talk about last week for a moment, because tonight is going to build on what we discussed last week and then take it much further. So last week we established what I think is a pretty incredible truth about Judaism, and that is that Judaism and Torah is obsessed with food. Now, we had a conversation last week, and the fellow that was sitting over here, Jamie, um, said, well, yeah, that's because that's what people do. People eat. However, not all human activity is discussed in the Torah. There's a lot of things that people do all the time that's not discussed, right? Uh, I mean, when I say a lot of things, like basic human needs, right? Like, I don't know, going to the restroom. These things are just not discussed in Torah. The Torah doesn't go out of its way to say, oh, hey, and then they sat down and had a meal if there's not something instructive. So the very first thing we know about Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, um, is that they, they were given a mitzvah that they failed, and the commandment was regarding food. Noah, after he gets off of the ark, he plants a vineyard, he gets drunk, and he has a run-in with his son, with Cham. Um, we know that Avram and Sarah, they influence people through their um, bed and breakfast, as it were, through their place of lodging and place of, and their restaurant, essentially, where they took blessings instead of payment. Um, and again, they, they influence through food. Joseph and his brothers, they sell him as a slave. And then the Torah says they sat down to eat a meal. There's something significant. The last thing we did together as a nation, I don't think I mentioned this last week. Maybe I did. The last thing we did together as a, uh, sorry, the last thing we did together before the Exodus, before we became a formal free nation, was we sat down and had a meal. So food is clearly significant. It's not just something that we do and something that we need, but it's something that Torah and Judaism goes out of its way to emphasize, to mention, etc. And so we explained last, last week that the reason, uh, at least according to Kabbalah, the deeper reason why eating is so significant is because it really captures the essence of our mission in life. What is our mission in life? Well, if you ask a Kabbalist, like anyone who's who um, well-versed in Lorianna Kabbalah, the Kabbalists will tell you that the purpose of the world is tikkun olam. Not the tikkun olam of popular reference, but the literal tikkun olam, fixing the broken pieces. What are the broken pieces? This was an elaborate discussion, which I think we, uh, we covered a little bit last week, about the shattering of the vessels. So essentially, again, all of this is just review. Essentially, we explained last week, the Arizal says that um, originally God created the world of tohu, the world of chaos, in which the lights were bigger than the vessels. So you had too much energy and too little container. When that dynamic, when that, uh, when that, conf- when that, um, those two things collide, too much energy, too little vessel. So not, it's not just that the vessel can't contain the energy. It's the vessel actually becomes harmed by the energy. So, for example, as I said last week, if you expose the human eye to a very large quantity of light, it's not just that the eye, you know, it's, it's too much for the eye to handle. It actually will harm the eye and cause it damage, God forbid. So that's the way things work. If there's too much light and too little vessel, it's going to harm the vessel. And that's what happens in the world of Tohu. By the way, now that I feel like we have 
maybe a drop more time. Um, at least we're at the beginning. So, you know, life is like a picture postcard. You ever heard that expression? You know, when you're, when you're, when you're, when you wrote a postcard back in the day, so you start off with big letters cause you weren't sure what to write. Dear mom, the Bahamas are great. And you think like, okay, that's, and then you start writing and then you have more and more to write. So your writing becomes smaller and then you start looping around the back cause you're like, or the side cause you realize that you have more to say. So, um, at least in the beginning of the class, I feel like we have tons of time. So here's the deal. The world of Tohu, and this is something we'll explore in the Kabbalah course at length, but just to give you a quick insight into this. In the world of Tohu, we have what's referred to as Ampin Mispardim. We have branches that are separate. Now, you're all familiar, we saw it last night, with the depiction of the spheros, the spherot, as a partsuf, right? You have one sphere on one side, one on the other, and one in the middle, right? That triangular configuration, right, left, center, right, left, center, center, maybe one at the top also, that it forms kind of like a diamond. It's called a partsuf. Partsuf means a face, a visage. Why is it called partsuf? Well, think about the human face. Two eyes and a nose. <coughs> In other words, there's balance. Right, left, center. So the spheros, as depicted in the partsuf, indicate that each energy is open to working with the other one. Each one says, I'm chesed. Like, I'm all about kindness. You're all about gvur. You're all about restraint. But, like, I give you withhold, but we can work together. Not only we can work together, we need each other. Because unmitigated chesed is not healthy. Too much giving is also not good. Too much withholding is not good also. So you need, each one recognizes that it alone can't solve all the problems. It needs to work. So that's tikkun. Tikkun means that every energy recognizes that it needs the other. Tohu, the world of chaos, is a world in which every energy feels like, emlech. I want to rule this. Imagine you have 10 people in a room, and they're all deciding policy. And each one of these individuals, I mean, you can imagine what's going on in Israel right now, right? Everyone's, I'm sure, everyone here in America that's not involved in government has no idea what's really happening on the ground. Everyone's got an idea about, you know, what we need to do. So can you imagine what's going on in the actual war rooms? If you have big, big people with big ideas and big personalities, well, what happens often is you have a lot of volatility. The volatility is um, people saying, this is what we need to do. I have the answer and your idea is wrong. And this is what was going on in the world of Tohu. This type of chaos, this type of, um, of all or nothing or, you know, my way versus the highway. Um, that is, that is the dynamic that was going on in that world of, of Tohu. And that is not sustainable. A world in which or a space in which, um, no one's getting along because everyone has, wants to have the, the, the only say that's not a sustainable environment. So, as I explained last week, um, the vessels of tohu, of chaos, shatter. It's called the shviras hakelim, the shattering of the vessels. And those vessels become the sparks of energy, the divine energy that is embedded in this reality. I feel like I, I didn't explain this. Merav, you and I were talking about this last week. Didn't explain it fully because we were kind of cutting it close with time. But I want to give a, a, a quick explanation. Imagine you have, okay, that's a pitcher, right? I feel like it's a decently ornate, whatever. It's like, it's got some flowers and some design in it. It's got an interesting shape. Great. If that were to fall and shatter into a million pieces, roughly, give or take, right? 
you wouldn't say that, oh, it's a, uh, it's a, oh, that's a pitcher. You wouldn't say it's a pitcher. It loses its identity. The moment it's shattered, the vessel ceases to be a vessel. Now it's just fragments. It's not a vessel. Certain things, when you reorient it, when you put it in a different space, it retains its name. But a vessel shattered is no longer a vessel. So the mystics say, how do you get from spirituality to physicality? How do you go, how do you make that quantum leap between the spiritual and the physical? Because no matter how much you cut spiritual light, no matter how much you shade or, or obscure spirituality, at what point does it become physical? That's like, that's like, it's like imagine you have an idea in your head for a car. I know we used car last night. But imagine you have an idea in your head for a car and you think about it and you really picture it and, and you really narrow it down and, 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 and it becomes so real in your head, you still haven't produced an actual car. In other words, no amount of spiritual symptom, helem, concealment, whatever, will produce material. So how does that happen? Sure as I can. Shattering the vessels. Shattering the vessels is where you take something spiritual and it's no longer a vessel. It's something rat. It has a new definition. It's it, once it breaks, it's no longer the same thing. It's something radically different. And that's the jump, roughly the jump between spiritual and physical. That's why the world of Toho, the world of chaos is not an accident, but it's a necessary part of the stage. Something has to break. Something has to be radically redefined or lose its prior definition to assume a new definition. Either way, that's just a little bit of more uh, explanation from last week. Either way, the point is that in that that these fragments serve as um, points of light, hidden, embedded points of light within our reality, the world of tikkun. And our job, as the Rizal says, is literally tikkun alam, is to find these sparks wherever they are, collect them, and utilize them for the original their original divine purpose that's it basically he says life is like i don't know a video game super mario but i mean i used to have a game boy back in the day that was the extent of my gaming actually that's not true i had like an 8-bit nintendo duck hunt thing also hey reeves um but i remember super mario brothers it was great do 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 right you're bouncing around you're bouncing around, collecting coins. The result says, that's what we're doing. You have all these coins. Some are obvious. Some are hidden. Not exactly coins, but points of energy. And our job is to collect them. Here's the catch. The catch is that every soul is assigned certain sparks. And if your soul is not assigned those sparks, you can't elevate them. You can't actually refine them. Collect. I mean, you can interact with them, but you're not going to get the job done. It's like... Best example I can think of is it's like um, your car's key fob. It only works to your car, you would hope. I was in Whole Foods today, and a few like a month or two ago, I set up the palm. You guys set up that palm um, reading? Sounds wrong. The palm payment? It's fantastic. Is that Whole Foods? Whole Foods. That's what, because Amazon, it's through Amazon, it's got this whole thing. Basically, it used to be like you have, if you want to, I don't know what the perks are, but if you want to, sign in with your prime account so you had to pull up a code on your phone scan the code and then pay they're like forget it so now you just you set it up once you have your you scan in your code and your credit card you put your hand down it reads your hand you move it around a little bit boom so now i just go i check out self-checkout you put your hand over it beam me up scotty boom it pulls up your account it pays for it you walk out i just hope 
no one has a palm that looks like mine. That's it, or else I'm going to be dinged. But the point is <coughs> that just like no two key fobs are alike, just like no two, hopefully, palms are alike, the same thing is true when it comes to souls. Every soul has its sparks that it is associated with and that they need that soul. That's the secret of reincarnation. Reincarnation is if you didn't collect all your sparks, we got, we got to figure that out now, right? If, if, if we left sparks in this world, all right, so we got we, we to gotta have a plan to collect those. Yeah. Are the sparks embedded in the 613 mitzvahs? Because I've heard before that you get reincarnated if you haven't done all the mitzvahs. Yes. The Rizal says that every one of us has to fulfill all 613 mitzvahs and has to study Torah on all four dimensions of Paradise, Peshat, Remish, Rosor. And if we miss some of that, then grounds for reincarnation. And along with that, the same things with the sparks. But aren't some of the mitzvot dependent on the, the temple? And, yeah. And are they... Are, Correct. Is, are some of them restricted to the Kohen? Or yes. So some only for men, some only for women. I don't know. That's a good question. Because that's going to take a while. <laughs> right? That's going to take a while. Yeah, it could. I mean, we're all reincarnated still, so it could be like a branch of a branch of a branch that somehow is somehow connected to some Kohen Gadol. That's a good question. But yeah, there's, there's definitely um, various grounds for reincarnation. And so the idea is, that that is the purpose of life. And by the way, something that if you kind of like take a step back and like look at the historical context of the rise of Kabbalah, it's kind of clear when Kabbalah really becomes, you know, widespread or at least top more. It's right after the Inquisition. And it's by a lot of folks that originated from Spain, a lot of displaced Jews, Tzvat, that, are, that have, have Spanish origin. And the idea is, you know, thrown out of the land, displaced, on the run, the Arizal says, all of this makes sense. All of this makes sense. You know why? Because there's sparks in other places that you have to collect. That's why have sparks or need to get sparks will travel. This is how he makes sense of exile, of diaspora, of galut. This is how he makes sense of the travelings of our people. He says, look, it makes total sense. These sparks shattered everywhere. We need people everywhere. So it was great to be comfortable in one place, but now that you find yourself in a different place, you got to grab those sparks. This gives a sense of meaning, purpose, activism. It's, it's, it's incredible. Talk about a breath of invigoration in a populace that otherwise could be completely depressed and completely broken, saying, no, 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 there's tremendous purpose here. I'm not just saying that he said this as a, as a matter of convenience and inspiration. What I am saying is that it did prove to be highly inspiring. Is that someone here? Or someone elsewhere? Okay, so all of this, all of this was the background. All of this was the background of what we said last week regarding food. Why is food so important? Because there are so many sparks in the food. Food comes from vegetation, well, Mineral, plant, or animal life, depending on what you're eating, right? It comes from the three lower strata of, of, of life. And thus, it contains energy that at the surface would seem to be lower than our energy. We have a human soul, 
and those other elements have either an, only an animal soul or a plant soul or a mineral soul. And it would seem like, well, how could those things satisfy the spiritual needs of a human being? And the answer is because whatever fell lower is actually rooted from a higher source. And that's why our soul needs to interact with those lowest of spaces. And so food, <coughs> the food that we eat, unlike a mitzvah that we do, the food is what we eat and it becomes part of our body, becomes part of our biology. And because of that, when we use that energy to study Torah, to daven, to do good deeds, to mitzvot, when we use the energy of the food to do good things, and, and the only way we're alive and can do good things is with the energy of the food that we eat, um, so that converts the spiritual energy of the food into divine energy, into fulfilling its mission to reconnecting the spark back to its source. All of that is what we said last week. This week, we're going to ask the following question. If that's the case, if the highest sparks are in the lowest spaces, and our job is to find, seek out, collect, access, and convert those sparks back to holiness, why kosher? On the contrary, let's go, let's go all the way down. Let's, let's, just, let's just go for it. Let's take the lowest of the low and use that energy to do a mitzvah. Can you imagine how proud God would be? That would be the ultimate conversion. So, huh? Yeah. What, wouldn't that be the highest? So we're going to explore this again from a, from a mystical place. So today's discussion is going to take place in three acts. Act one, the, the, um, the history of kosher. Act two, the meaning of kosher. And act three, the Kabbalah of kosher. So let's begin with act one. All good stories are told in three acts. Ah, oh, there you go. I feel like all good stories are told in three acts. I don't know. I mean, is that? It's a, it's a basic structure. All right. Good. So at least we're predictable. So act one, the history of food. This, sorry, the history of kosher. We spoke about food last week. This is kosher specifically. So what's interesting is that although we find um, mention of food in Torah throughout the Torah, and we find that Noah, for example, was granted permission to eat animals, we don't find the laws of kashrut, of kosher, until the middle of the third book. It's crazy. We have two and a half books of Torah, no mention of kosher. And you have an illusion. God tells Noah, Noah to take from the animals two of every animals, and the pure animals to take seven pairs, 14. How did he know which ones, were, which, which ones were kosher? I guess he had insider information. Maybe he had a cheat sheet. So like quarterbacks, you know, they have these like little wrist things with all the plays on them. He was like, oh, here are the animals. Here's the list. So, but, but, this, but specifying, spelling out the laws of kashrut doesn't happen until deep into the book of, 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 uh, of Ayikra, of Leviticus. Let's jump in to... Um, our text. If you please, will open your booklets. Um, let's begin with text number one. All right, um, Meir, you up to reading text one? Okay. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, "These are the creatures that you may eat from among all the animals on the earth. You may eat any animal that has a cloven hoof that is completely split into two, 
and brings up its cud. Among all creatures that are in the water, you may eat these. You may eat any creature in the water, whether in the seas or rivers, that has fins and scales. So here we have, thank you, here we have what's called the simanim, the signs of kosher. For animals, it's split hooves uh, and, and chewing cud. Those are the two signs. For fish, it's fins and scales. For birds, <laughs> birds are interesting. It's, it's actually fascinating. Birds, I'm, I'm sure you, you, you've heard this before. Um, the Torah says all birds are kosher except for a list. But because we don't exactly know what every word means, like there's different positions on that, we go the opposite extreme. We say guilty until proven innocent. We say don't eat any birds except for the ones that we know for sure our ancestors ate. So that's why our bird consumption is very limited. So that's when it, that's that's as far as land animals, fish and birds. Land animals, spodhoshu cud, fish, fins and scales, and um, birds, whatever we have a tradition for. Aside from that, other forms of life are all kosher. Fruits, vegetables, not a problem. It's all kosher. What birds are eaten? Are edible that are not ostrich. Ostrich. that people don't eat. Oh. I don't even know. I guess. I was very disappointed when I found out that ostrich. Oh, really? There was a time. When you ate ostrich? Yeah, because there was a time in like the 90s when ostrich was becoming like. A, it was like the next big thing. It was thing. the next big thing because the meat is more healthier. Interesting. It tastes like beef, but it's actually. It does? Yeah, it's actually more like healthy than beef. Interesting. And, uh. So. <clears throat> Look, it's, what's interesting is that some people don't eat turkey. Have you ever heard that? Some families have a tradition not to eat turkey. Why? Because apparently there were turkeys that attacked, you know, somebody or some community, wild turkeys, and they're like, there's no way that that, that, that you know, fiend is kosher, not kosher. So the Hor- I think the Horowitz family, maybe it's, Hor- maybe it's another family. There's a family, like a very well, like a big last name family, like that has... But they don't, they don't eat turkey. It's like a known thing. Um, it's so known, I can't remember the family. But anyway, so getting back to this idea. You know, fruits, vegetables, things that grow from the ground, all of that is kosher, except for, obviously, um, these animals and, that, that need, and these creatures that need living beings that need um, these, these criteria. I get asked this all the time, and I'm, I'm just mentioning this. I know you know this. The reason why something that's not um, an animal product needs a heksher is simply because of processing. It's run through a factory. What else is in there? How do we know there's no animal products that are mixed in? What ran on the line of food production right before it? Was it cleaned properly? That's really where, where, where hechshers come in. Otherwise, be very simple. I mean, you just read the ingredients, boom. But, you know, I mean, dyes can be made of bug. I mean, who, there's a lot of stuff out there. Again, you know all this. I'm just, I'm just uh, clarifying. Now, that's the history of kosher. The history of kosher is it begins in the book of Vayikra. The real question then is, Act 2, is the meaning of kosher. Why kosher? What does it mean? Now, the Torah doesn't give us a why. The Torah doesn't say you should eat kosher because doesn't say because this food is better, that food is inferior. It doesn't say that. There's no reason for it. It's considered one of the chukim, three types of mitzvot. 
the chukim are the mitzvahs that don't that are not given with a rationale. It's considered to be a super rational mitzvah. Except for blood. Except for blood. Ki adam hu His blood is the soul. Right. Right. Um, which that itself is a little bit enigmatic. What does it actually mean? The blood is the soul. Don't eat the blood because you're eating the soul. <sighs> Sorry, vampires. You cannot be a kosher vampire. Who would have thought? Um, the commentaries, though, give a ton of explanation <laughs> as to the significance of kosher. Now, it's very important to recognize that when the commentaries give a rationale, it's not replacing the fact that it's a chok, it's adding on. This is something very important. This is something that Rambam, Maimonides, got into major hot water for. I did one of the davening 101s a few months ago. We spoke about the major controversy that engulfed the works of Rambam after he died. 30 years after he died. You might have been, I don't know if you were there for that one. 30 years after he died, they burned his books. Maimonides. Rabbis burned Maimonides. Well, what happened? People, you know, he wrote it in, he wrote, sorry, he wrote his Guide for the Perplexed, which is his philosophical work, in Arabic. And he writes in the introduction, he's writing it for a very specific audience. The young mind who wants to study philosophy, but can only find Arabic Hellenistic works. That's all the philosophy that existed for a Jew were from other sources. So he said, I'm going to write a book. Jewish philosophy. So if you're philosophically minded, you have a place to go. That's Mor Nebuchad. What happens? It gets translated into Hebrew. That was the, I can't say mistake, but that was, that was problematic. First of all, Maimonides dealt with the translator extensively. He wrote a letter. We have the letter. He wrote a letter detailing how to translate. Um, Rabbi Tzvi Freeman loves quoting this letter. Because Rambam says, do not translate the words. Translate the ideas. Make sure it reads in the other language. You ever read a translation of a Jewish text? And you're like, this could have been written in China. Right? Like those literal translations. <coughs> it's very frustrating when you're reading something. And it sounds so rigid and boxy. It's like, that. it's not even thou and... It used to be the joke was, we wrote thou and shalls. It's not even thou and shalls. It's just writing it in such a boxy way. It doesn't work in that language. Let's get back. So they translate his work into Hebrew. And then it gets, who gets a hold of it? The French rabbis, including the Tosafists, the grandsons of Rashi. They were hardliners. They were hardliners. They read it. You know what he writes about the katoras, the incense in the temple? He says, you know why they burned the incense? Because it was a slaughterhouse. And a slaughterhouse smells bad. So Hashem says, incense. He said, what? Holy Febreze, Batman. You're saying that the Ketoros is simply potpourri? It's not. And what if we found a better formula? We don't need that anymore? How dare Rambam, how dare Maimonides de, um, reduce the holy incense of the temple to air freshener, something so utilitarian? How do we... So eventually they had it burned. We always, and a few decades after that, or maybe even less than a few decades after that, the first burnings of the Talmud in, in Paris. Wagon loads of every edition of Talmud that they could get their hands on were burned. We always give the ideas. 
We all, that's the way it works. We're always our worst enemies. Jews were the first one to burn Jewish books. And then, so here's the deal. The church. They were told that it was... Uh... It mocked Jesus, that it was heretical, that it was against Christianity, etc. Catholicism, whatever. The... I think it was a Jew who told them. It was an apostle. Yeah, they couldn't read. So, yeah. yeah, they couldn't read the Gemara. So if they burned... There's no art scroll then. <laughs> if they burned Ramadan's book, how did it... Get uh, it's... it's, it's... I'm just saying that the, the idea of burning books. No, but how did Rambam if they burned all those books? Oh, oh, good. They, well, they so here's what happened. It's a long story. I mean, it's not that. I'm taking you off the. No, it's fine. It's all it's all related. Basically, um, the way the books were burned is that the hardline rabbis went to the authorities, the Christian authorities. Kind of whatever, the, the non-Jewish uh, authorities, and they said, look, these works are heresy. You got to get rid of them. Then they were told, then, and they burned the books, then they were told that it's not heresy by other rabbis. Mm-hmm. They ended up cutting out the tongues of all the rabbis that said that it was heresy. So not only were they... Literally? The, literally. Who not the, the authorities, the church... Or the government. Not only were the books burned, but these individuals were were mutilated, and so they realized, like, number one, none of this is good. It really escalated into a big war. It started off as an internal war over the guy for the perplexed, kosher or not kosher. But then they got the authorities involved. They realized that that went way too far, and that was like a very sobering moment. Um, and and everything kind of like everyone backed off and you know this was a debate a good debate but it wasn't something that should have ever escalated that far so that's how they backed off and ultimately when cooler has prevailed and this is the way the Rebbe explains it the Rambam wasn't reducing incense to air freshener he was saying that it also has a physical benefit which is again an obvious distinction that you can make you could say two things and that, that this relates to kosher. You can say that kosher is only because it's healthier, or you can say kosher is a mitzvah. But since God is giving the mitzvah, God designs the human being, you know what? There are other benefits as well. Let's talk about those benefits. It's a different way of framing it, and clearly that's the intention of Rambam. The problem was, all of this blew up a few decades after his death. They couldn't even ask him what he meant. So you're, they were then taking, and it was a translation of the original, taking that, running with it, getting all, you know, um, uh, um, triggered and, 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 and blowing things up. That was, that was uh, um, the problem. But again, the way the Rebbe explains it, and it's the way others explain it as well, but certainly this is the, the Rebbe's approach. This, Rambam is Rambam. He wrote a book of Jewish law and he wrote a philosophical work. It's not two different guys. It's the same, the same giant Maimonides. Same guy. In his book of philosophy, he's basically saying that if Torah is true, and if spirituality is the source of physicality, then if something is a mitzvah, it has to have an imprint in the physical world as well. And so that's how we frame it. So getting back to kosher, <coughs> even though, excuse me, even though kosher is a chok, it's a decree, 
the same time, there are various benefits of kosher. So let's look at some, we have like a number of six or seven different texts that speak about, you know, the, uh, um, the value of, of kosher. And so let's go through these. The first one is going to be Vayikra Rabbah, the Medrash on the book of Leviticus. Mirav, are you up to reading text two, please? These are the animals. This is the meaning of what is written. All of God's words are fine. Rav expounded. The only reason the mitzvot were given to Israel was to refine the created beings. Why is this so? The answer is found in the continuation of the verse. He is a shield to all who trust in him. This is actually, thank you, this is actually a powerful teaching. Lo nitnu ha-mitzvot li-Yisrael elo l'tzarev bahen et the only reason the mitzvahs were given to the Jewish people was to refine human character. That means that every mitzvah, every mitzvah, you think you're doing a mitzvah for, for Hashem, you know, for God, every mitzvah, the, the Medrash says, is really for our benefit. That's not, again, to be clear, that's not the only reason for the mitzvah, but every mitzvah benefits us. There's a great story um, I heard this from the rabbi himself. It was a rabbi who brought college students for a meeting with the rabbi back in the 60s or 70s. And one of them asked the question. He says, Rabbi, these were non-religious college students. He says, Rabbi, you know, everyone says do a mitzvah for God. That doesn't inspire me. Like, I don't know. Do a mitzvah for God. God wants you to do that. I don't know. It's like you're speaking a different language. So the rabbi said, you know when you're feeding a kid, a ba- like a ch- young child, you're actually feeding the child. So you say, take a spoonful for Bobby. Here's a spoonful for Zadie, Grandma, Grandpa, Uncle, you know, Uncle Bob. And you're giving the kid spoon. You say, do one for this, one for that. Who's getting the food? Who's getting the nutrition? Grandma, Grandpa, <coughs> the cousins, the uncles, the nephews, the mother, the father. No, it's the kid. So we say, the mitzvah is for Hashem. Great. But who really benefits? It's us. It's every mitzvah is to our benefit. So when it comes to kosher, when it comes to kosher, kosher is, and the measure says this on the Pasuk that says, Zosa behema, these are the animals that you should eat. Which means that the measure is saying that it's kosher food, kosher animals, kosher food, that helps refine our character. Now, it doesn't specify how, but that's why we have a lot of other texts to kind of uh, to play with this. But one thing we know is that definitely if it's a mitzvah, it's going to have a personal benefit. Now, let's look at the Medrash. Text number three. This is from the Tanchuma, different Midrashic text. And the second paragraph in text three is a commentary on that same Mishnah. Um, Tom, please take it away. Text three, yeah, both. <clears throat> These are the creatures that you may eat. This is the meaning of the verse. I desire to fulfill your will. My God and your Torah is in my inner. So the, the commentary, which is the next paragraph, is going to explain that last word. Your Torah is in my innards. What does that mean? Is there Torah in the innards? Doesn't it reside in the mind and the heart? Rather, the Midrash is referring to kosher food that enters one's stomach. Through eating kosher, the soul is energized as if the Torah had entered the body. There you go. It, the word is the innards. It's like the kishkas. It's like in your guts. It says, your Torah is in my innards. Really? It's not Torah. It's referring to, to food. To the food that we eat. To the kosher food that we eat. The kosher food 
is, and by the way, kosher is in the Hebrew. It's kosher food. Eating kosher food energizes the body, and um, and it's like the sorry, the soul is energized as if the Torah had entered the body. It's powerful, powerful. Let's look at text number four. We're just going to keep on building on these ideas, the, the the benefits of kosher or the meaning of kosher. So now this is going to be Sfarno, another um, commentary. On, again, Leviticus, the laws of kosher. I'll read this one. And it starts with the quote from the Torah. These are the creatures that you may eat, etc. At the time of the giving of the Torah, this is powerful, the Jews were worthy of <coughs> having the divine glory reside upon them directly without needing an intermediary. However, as a result of the sin of the golden calf, they lost the spiritual attire. And God did not want His glory to reside upon them at all. So he's basically saying that at the time of, uh, of the Torah, receiving the Torah at Sane, the Jews had a direct connection. After the sin, there was a distance. However, Moshe's prayer succeeded in rectifying this somewhat, um, this somewhat, and accomplished that God's presence should dwell among them through the tabernacle and its vessels, priests, and sacrifices. The Jews were thus able to experience a revelation of God's glory and witnessed a heavenly fire consume the sacrifices. So, whereas before, sorry, whereas post-sin, there was this distance, Moshe's prayers, we got, a, we got a Mishkan, we got a tabernacle, and we got some space, some presence of God. But it was still in a building. God further desired to refine the Jews' temperament so they would be worthy of receiving the eternal light, in other words, internally. He did so by improving their nourishment, forbidding the consumption of foods <coughs> excuse me, that defile the soul with negative emotions and perspectives. The Sferno is saying something incredible. What he says is, he explains why kosher was not given to the people, why we don't find it in Torah right away. And does he know why? Because it was a process. Originally, we were so connected, intimately connected with God, we had this this very close-knit relationship. After the sin, God says, whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a break from you guys. We built a Mishkan. God says, all right, I'll hang out there and you can meet me there. But then Hashem, after the Mishkan, it's literally these laws of kosher come right after the Torah describes the architecture and then the building and then the, of the Mishkan and then the opening day and whatever happened on that day. After that, right after that, and all the sacrifices that you need to bring right after that, laws of kosher. He says, why? Because Hashem says, you know what? Now I want a relationship with you, but you got to clean yourselves out a little bit. you got to refine your character. I'm going to give you the right diet to kind of like get yourself ready for that relationship. That's kosher. Okay. Next, we're going to do Ramban, Nachmanes. The goal here is to present an array of commentaries explaining the meaning, deeper meaning of kosher. Here... Nachmanides, Ramban, not, not Maimonides, but Nachmanides, a contemporary, here he explains that, um, here, here he explains that, um, that kosher food has a role in refining um, our character and making us more sensitive. Okay, take it away, Mira. Leninger states, what is the difference to God? One consumes pure animals, kosher food, or impure animals, non 
Rather, as the verse states, if you have gained wisdom, wisdom will be yours to benefit from. The mitzvah were only given to refine the created being. And by the way, we quoted that all the way back in text number two, this idea that, I, I love that verse, if you have gained wisdom, wisdom will be yours. In other words, you want me to study wisdom? What do I get from it? Wisdom. Hello. This is for your benefit. It's like, here's wisdom to study. Why? Bro, because you'll have wisdom. It's like, why should I do this mitzvah? Hello, you're going to gain from it. Again, that's the same idea. Okay, continue. With this, Midrash alludes that the reason why God commanded us to eat kosher food is because we possess pristine souls and are wise and understanding the truth. Mitzvot such as slaughtering through slitting the neck are there to teach us proper character traits, and mitzvot such as refraining from consuming certain species are there to refine our souls. Accordingly, they are all exclusively for our own benefit and not God. So here, Ramban again kind of doubles down on that train of thought and says, kosher is to our benefit. Again, just to reiterate how I started this, not to say that this is the only reason for kosher. Kosher remains something that is, you know, Hashem's command, Hashem's will. But the reality is that kosher has a benefit. And he talks about two benefits. Number one, the process of taking the life of an animal is done in, I mean, you're taking the life of an animal, no matter how, no pun intended, no matter how you slice it. Hey-oh. Right, but here's the thing. You, we do it in the most painless fashion, in the most, as it were, humane fashion. Instills a sensitivity within the person that is, uh, that is, that is um, preparing the food, number one. Number two, we refrain from eating certain types of animals. He doesn't quote it here. It's in some other sources, which we'll get to soon. But he writes extensively on the non-kosher birds, for example. He says these are birds of prey, and not that type of prey, but like that type of prey. These are birds, for example, that are aggressive. And we don't want to inculcate those character traits. We simply do not want to inculcate that. So in the sense of preserving the purity of our souls and the innocence of our, of our beings, what we eat goes a long way. The Sinai diet is very, um, is very much a piece of that. All right, now let's look at the next one, which is the Akedas Yitzchak, um, which is, again, a commentary from the medieval times. Erav. Um, Oh, this is a long one. Actually, no, no, no. No, text 7 is a long one. Okay, text 6, please. It is important to know that these foods are not prohibited due to them being physically unhealthy, as some suggest. God forbid. For if so, the divine Torah's status would be lowered to that of a medical treatise, and this would be unbefitting. Rather, the reason they are prohibited is due to them being unhealthy for the soul, for they are abominable, harming the soul and desensitizing it, and introducing within it negative characteristics and passions. This creates a spirit of impurity that defiles one's perspective and conduct and divorces one's spirit of purity and holiness. This is why the Torah refers to forbidden foods as impure, indicating that the reason they are forbidden is because of the evil and immoral spirit they instill within those who consume them. 
One who wishes to protect himself should stay far away from them, just as one avoids deadly poison. Very strong language, thank you. Very strong language. Like, man, you're doomed if you're eating these things. But I, the point of this is, again, we're gaining like a broad range of, of commentaries. The point of this is to say that kosher is about, it's not just physically healthy, it's about spiritual health and character sensitivity. Um, the final text, I believe, on this topic, yes, is the Abarbanel. The Abarbanel really leans in to this, and you'll see what he says. All right, take it away, text 7. The flesh of most animals that hooves and chew their cud is beneficial for human consumption. The reason an animal chews its cud is because it lacks teeth in its upper jaw, and it's thus unable to eat bones and can only consume grass, which it swallows whole. Once the natural heat of the stomach softens the grass, the animal brings it up via the throat and chews it with its cheeks, and then swallows it a second time. Such animals are full of fat and are beneficial for human consumption because their food is always available everywhere. Furthermore, since they feed on both fresh and dry grass, they possess a suitable temperament and are not merciless predators. By the way, up until that last sentence, it sounds like he's saying that kosher food is just healthier, which we said that it's not the, that can't be the reason. But that last sentence, furthermore, right, they possess a suitable temperament. They're not predators. They're not carnivores. Continue. This is further demonstrated by the fact that their hooves are wide and split, for they do not need the teeth and claws typical of predators. Predatory animals feed on flesh, blood, and bones, that introduce a hot and dry temperament within those that consume them, causing them to be merciless and full of wrath. By the way, sorry, just to interrupt this. It strikes me, do you know that pigs are actually very dangerous animals? I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. They, I mean, Predator. wild boars. Right, I sure, have, have heard of that. pigs are, like, will attack and... Interesting. Yeah, so... Um, yeah. Anyway, cows are usually pretty docile. I've never heard of cows attacking anybody. They're just bulls, I guess. Right. Yeah. yeah. These foods are what causes them to possess negative characteristics. Snatching prey that does not belong to them. <coughs> why nature has prepared claws and teeth for them with which to grasp their prey. Kosher animals, by contrast, are nourished from the grasses of the field, and nature has therefore prepared split hooves and wide feet for them so they can walk upon the earth and find their food. Nature did not provide them with teeth as they are not necessary to consume grass. This is why the signs of a kosher animal are split wounds and chewing its cud because they demonstrate that the animal possesses positive characteristics and does not prey on other animals. So straight up, predator versus non-predatory animals. Straight up, that's what he says. And, and, and not saying that therefore one is physically, you know, on a caloric level or whatever, like better, but it's, it's an energy. What is the energy of a predator? A predator. We don't want predatory energy inside of us. We don't want to be predators. We want to be, you know, um, <laughs> non-predators, um, you know, docile, loving, etc. creatures. Now, all of this, We've covered now part one and part two, or act one and act two. Now we're up to act three, and I'm going to recycle the question. So we've, just to be clear here, to see what we've done and what still remains unresolved. 
We explored the history of kosher in the Torah and its placement in Leviticus. We explored the meaning of kosher from a number of perspectives, all kind of circling around the same rough point, which is that kosher food is beneficial for us. And non-kosher food is detrimental to our spiritual disposition. All true. However, we're still stuck with a question. The question we started with, and now the question can take on a little bit of a, of a nuance, but it's still a question. Okay. We said last week, and as I quoted before um, at the beginning of the class, there's a spark of God in everything. And the higher the spark, the lower it falls, which means reverse, reversing it. The lower something is... It means it comes from a higher source, which would mean that non-kosher food, which is lower in rank, right, would have the highest sparks. But now he said, no, 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 no. Don't eat non-kosher food because it's going to mess with your soul. Okay, but what if someone says, hey, I'm a spiritual warrior. You know what warriors do? Warriors go into battle. Warriors, sometimes warriors get hurt, but you take one for the team. It's like, this is, this is not for the weak, for the faint of heart. I'm willing, I'm willing to get shot at from the enemy, right, as it were, to go in and rescue the hidden light, the lost light. Like, I'm, I'm willing to do that. That's, that's a good rationality for eating a cheeseburger. I'm, I'm I'll go in. And you know what? And I'll take the hit. And I'll be dust sensitive. But someone's got to do it. So that's the question. So what's wrong? This takes us to the final act and really the punchline of the conversation. And it's something that, that, that you've probably encountered before, but I think, again, when you build a question, you build a, you build a foundation, then suddenly an idea becomes a real answer, like a good, a good idea. This is going to come from Tanya. And in Tanya, he explains the concept of klipa. Klipa means shell. And here's the quick background, and then we're going to read the text. The quick background of this is, that all those sparks of holiness, all those points of light that are found in this world, they're all protected by a shell. If not for the shell, the light would dissipate. It's all protected by a shell, similar to the way nature provides shells for fruit, because without the shell, I don't know, it would get destroyed or lost or ruined. So the shell is what keeps the fruit intact. I mean, I don't think you would buy a banana in the store if it didn't have a peel on it. That would be Super gross. You would think, I mean, I, I would think. Right, so a shell keeps the thing protected. Kabbalah explains, Chassidus elaborates on this idea and brings it home. There are two types of shells. There are shells that can be open and give access to the fruit inside. And then there are shells that are so thick and so coarse that even though there's something inside, you can't access that light. There's no way in. In the language of Kabbalah, there's klipat noga, translucent shell. That's a shell that can be opened. You can access the light. Shalos, shalosh klipot hatmeot. The three impure shells are the klipot, the shells that you just cannot. Oh, you can't access. There's no code. There's no access. The, the way you deal with that, with that light, is by rejecting that thing. That fulfills its purpose. Again, just to be very clear here. Most shards of light from the broken vessels, the way you fix it, the the tikkun, is by utilizing, is by engaging with it and elevating it. Most 
I don't know, most, many sparks are, 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 are elevated through engagement. But there are certain sparks where the shell is so thick, the way you, act, the way you fulfill its purpose is by rejecting it. It exists for you to walk by it, not to engage with. Some things you fix it by dealing with it. Some things you fix, the tikkun, is by rejecting it. Let's, let's read this inside text eight. <clears throat> Can you explain the difference between, uh, like last time you, you mentioned Levush, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about what, what is the Levush and Yeah, that's good, good, good. So Levush is usually used as a reference within the human being to outlets or modalities of expression of what's going on inside. So I have all this stuff inside, and either now I'm thinking about it, I'm, thinking, I'm processing, you know, consciously what's going on inside, or I'm speaking about it, or I'm doing something about it. Those are called levushim, levushim in the sense that they are, clothes are like forms of expression. They express the person. Like, I'm in a happy mood, I'm going to wear a bright color. I'm in a muted mood, I'm, in not, I'm going to wear a more somber color. I'm a rabbi, I'll just wear black and white. Or something like that, right? So, like, it's an expression. Klipa is not expressing. Klipa is typically not so expressive. Klipa is util- pretty much utilitarian. But there's two types of klipot. There's a klipa that you can open and klipa that we don't have the code for. Klipat noga is the openable shell. Shalosh klipot hatmeot. Three impure shells. And that's, we'll read it inside. So he says like this. Forbidden foods, this is text eight. On page, whatever this is, page eight. Forbidden foods and illicit, I don't know how you pronounce it, coition, derive their vitality from the three entirely unclean klipot. They are, oh, the Hebrew word for forbidden is asur. Asur means forbidden, but it literally means tied up, like bound. Right? Like literally tied in a knot. They are tied and bound by the klipot forever. And meaning the light is, is, is tied to the klipot and will not rise from the klipot until the time when death and evil will be eradicated forever when Mashiach comes. When Mashiach comes, there won't be any evil, which means all the shells will disappear. At that point, the light will be accessible. But until then, this light in those shells, you can't access Chapter 8, he says there's an additional aspect regarding forbidden foods, for which reason they are called isur, bound, and attached. Say one ate a forbidden food unwittingly. Listen to this. He gives an example. <clears throat> Someone thought it was kosher food, and they ate it. It turns out, big mistake. The restaurant had the wrong food, whatever it was. It turns out it wasn't kosher. Okay? Say one ate forbidden food unwittingly with the intention to serve God, with the energy to reference. So a person eats. They think it's kosher. They have in mind they're going to use the energy to daven, to do a mitzvah, to study Torah, whatever it is. Moreover, say one actually did so and studied and prayed with the energy derived from that food. Let's say you follow through. You ate a meal, you ate lunch, and then you went on to, uh, to volunteer. You did a mitzvah. Let's keep on going. Nevertheless, the vitality of the food does not ascend and enter the words of Torah and prayer, as is the case with permitted foods, with kosher food, because it is bound by the three unclean klipot, since each item of food and drink that one ingests immediately becomes blood and flesh of his flesh. If it wasn't 
kosher at the point of entry, it is irredeemable. That is a major idea. <clears throat> what he says here is not about intention. It's about, it's a, it's a spiritual reality. Either the light is accessible or it's inaccessible. It's either available or unavailable. It's one or the other. Kosher, the Hebrew word is, I mean, kosher is a Hebrew word, but the other word that's used is mutar. Mutar means untied. Asur is forbidden. Asur means tied. What's tied and untied? Why would you use that? That's a weird expression. Food is tied or untied? Yes. Untied means you can, you can uncouple or decouple the shell from the energy. You, can, you have the lock, to, you have the key to pick that lock. You can take it out, take off the cover, access the light, mutar. It's open, it's, it's accessible, it's available. It's unfettered. There's no locks. You just take off the, take off the, the case. Asur means it's locked down. This is locked down. You don't have access to that. It's like Apple. There's no kernel access, baby. It's like, I mean, you can jailbreak maybe, but yeah. No, I was just, I was looking, I was speaking Hebrew all my life, and I've never thought of a sur mutah. So the way he explains, right? The way it's I mean, it's marvelous. Asur, and it's not only about food. Asur means in general. Like, <coughs> the idea is that asur means whatever that activity is. You can't access. There's no way to flip that for the yeah, good. So, mutar means it's flippable. It's 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 ready to go. But so where is the thing that? person is going to like volunteer or something like you said but before that he ate oh. something non-kosher even not by accident yes what that the energy never ascends on high in other words mm-hmm. what it means like remember we said that in everything there's there's light and when you eat something you access the light and the energy and then when you do something positive so you're converting that energy to a mitzvah even if you literally did that whole process but you started with food that wasn't hey you started with food. Apparently, this is very good. It's very good. Very, very good. <clears throat> so if you started with food that's not kosher, so then even if you did the rest of the cycle, you consumed it, it became part of your, your flesh and blood, you then use that energy to do a mitzvah, it never converts, which, by the way, begs the question, well, why not? Well, we said because it's a sort of forbidden. Yeah, but one could say it doesn't matter. You still use the energy for a mitzvah. So for this, we have the last text. Wait, which which piece? Meaning, meaning, no, 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 it's okay. So we said last week that the goal of eating, not the goal, the, the real intention of eating is that everything that exists is powered by a spiritual force, which means in the food, right? So I have a cup of raspberry tea. So in this raspberry tea is a soul essentially, is a spark of God. Now, when I imbibe it, when I or drink it, right, when I drink it, it becomes part of my physiology. It gives me energy, right? It, 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 it gives me a positive jolt or whatever it is. And then I use that energy because I, without energy, then I don't, I don't live, right? So I, you, you need energy. I use that energy to do a mitzvah. So basically, I've converted the energy in the food into a mitzvah. It doesn't go. Oh, that's the good. That's the last question. So how could it work? So he says, no, it's a sur. It's tied down. It never goes. It can never go up. But the question is, what do you mean? It can never go up. Bottom line is, you used it and you did a mitzvah because of it. So at the end of the day, you did convert it. So listen to this. This takes us to the final text. The Rebbe writes a letter. This is printed in a collection of the Rebbe's letters. 
And I'll tell you what he says outside, and then I'll read it inside. Basically, what he says is, there is no, <clears throat> there is no logical, there is no physical imperative for this process to work of energy being converted into a mitzvah, into a divine space. The only way this whole system works that when you eat something, it becomes part of your energy, and then you use the energy for mitzvah, so you're elevating it. The only reason that works is because God said so. And when it comes to forbidden food, God says, I don't say so. So even though logically we would say, what? What? You ate it. It gave you energy. You did a mitzvah. This helped you do a mitzvah. Boom. This cheeseburger helped you do a mitzvah. You've now elevated it. You say, no, it's forbidden. It doesn't go up. It doesn't go up. I still use the energy to do the mitzvah. He says, no. This whole process is a supernatural process. I mean, he doesn't say that word, but he is basically, this is not a logical process. This is a process that is divinely ordained. And when it comes to kosher, God says, I divinely ordained this. And when it's not, God says, I'm out. This, this is not going to work. Let, let me read this inside, and then we'll see kind of how this makes sense. When one eats prohibited foods, and prays or learns with its energy. How is it possible, asked the Rebbe, that the energy does not ascend to holiness? You had, you ate the food, you got energy from it, you used to do it, so it, the cheeseburger should work. Why not? Is the answer is simple. The fact that food can, can be elevated to holiness is a chiddush, it's a novelty, because logic dictates otherwise. What connection does physical food and even the physical body have to the holiness of Torah and prayer, which is entirely spiritual? Makesha, right? What, the, what connection is there between the food and the mitzvah, between the food and God, or even between myself and God? This whole system, again, we're starting with a premise of, well, it's a logical system. The system works no matter, okay. Basically, the question is whether I paid for the electricity or whether I stole it from my neighbor because I ran a wire, right? If I plug in my toaster, it's going to work. So who cares whether or not I plug in kosher food, right, into my system or non-kosher food. There's still energy from food and I'm doing a mitzvah. It should count. He says, no. Because you're taking as an assumption that electricity works. Who? We're not talking about electricity. But who makes this whole system run? Hashem. It's a decree that Hashem says that person should have the ability to connect with me by doing a mitzvah and thus elevate their dynamic, their physical dynamic to Hashem, to me, basically God says, and that everything that helped them get there is also schlepped up in that process. None of that is logical. It's all because God said, I want this to work. Well, God is dictating then the terms of this agreement. And God says, in this context, it will work. In this context, it doesn't work. So a person says, but I use the energy anyway. Great, use the energy. Who says it ascends above? God said, God says this doesn't. So that's, that's, and that's kind of, and that's really the, the end of, uh, of, this, of, of the lesson. And the conclusion of this is that kosher is powerful on multiple levels. Number one, it's a divine decree. Number two, it's spiritually, and I would say psychologically, emotionally, I'm going to throw that also in there, even though it's not the main reason, it's beneficial for us. And the third element is that it's the only means, it's the only fuel, human fuel, that we can take with us 
up when we do a mitzvah. It's the only convertible energy source um, available to us. The stuff that's not kosher, even if we do something positive, we don't convert it into that, the spiritual fuel. Kosher is accessible, mutar. Non-kosher is inaccessible, asur. So that's the big idea. That's the Kabbalah of kosher and why we consider it to be soul food. Yes? Two questions. Number one, when you accidentally eat the non-kosher food, sure. does that negate the mitzvah that you No, 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 no. Not at all. So it's like separate. Sep- two separate uh, things. Yeah. By the way, Judaism, just, just as a point of, uh, of, of general uh, note, Judaism is very much opposed to the either or. I'm just going to call it cancel culture, which means if you did one thing wrong, everything is thrown out. Judaism is not on board with that. Um, in fact, I've done classes on... You know, maybe you were even part of some of those classes about, um, like, you know, stolen from the headlines from 20 years ago. Remember the Menendez brothers? They killed their parents in Outland, California, and they basically murdered. I mean, they no one knew right away, but they did it to inherit the estate. And so in, in the U.S., there's no way if you're convicted for murder, right, there's no way you inherit the estate of the parents that you murdered, that doesn't work. In Judaism, you would. Why? Because two separate things. Murder is murder, but an inheritance goes to the kids. It's the way it is. I, we don't want to reward that. It's two separate issues. We're going to punish that, but this is a reality. I, it was, this went very dark. This went very dark. But it's, it's fascinating. Halacha, really does a good job of kind of siloing the issues. We have a number of considerations. Each one needs to be addressed on its own and not be like, well, we don't like you, so therefore it's all gone. Which means, long answer to a, to a straightforward question. You asked if you eat non-kosher, do a mitzvah, does it tamper with the mitzvah? The answer is no. The mitzvah is a mitzvah, the non-kosher is non-kosher, and Wait, two so different things. Non-kosher, I mean... So you did the mitzvah and it's still the mitzvah. 100%. Correct. But the non-kosher, just the energy didn't get... Correct. Didn't get... Did what? It didn't get... It doesn't get converted. Doesn't get converted, which means that we engage in something that should have been rejected. We basically invested our time, energy, and, and eating experience in something that its purpose was for us to walk by. In other words, I'll give, I'll give an example. Let's say someone needs 20 bucks. A kid needs 20 bucks. They want 20 bucks. They walk by. They walk by a desk in school, teacher's desk. There's a $20 bill on the desk. Student says, Hashkacha Pratit, divine providence. I needed 20. There's 20 right here. No one's around. Hashem, thank you. Swipe the 20. Or that's one approach. And it's believing in God. Or the other approach is to say, this is a test. It's a test to see, because I want the 20, I could take the 20, no one's watching, but will I still do the right thing? Sometimes something is put in front of us for the sole purpose of us rejecting it. Not everything that is in front of us means that, oh, we need to incorporate it into our, you know, and then, and then give tzedakah from the 20. Not everything needs to be incorporated. So when it comes to the non-kosher, the purpose of that is for us to Keep on walking by. That's, that's, the, that's the idea. Now, again, your question is, well, what happens to it? 
nothing happens to it. it we shouldn't have engaged in it. It doesn't elevate. Um, now, based on what we learned tonight, does it desensitize us? Could be. Does it, you know, whatever, is it healthy for us? No. Is it, is it repairable? Absolutely. Because, again, it's not all or nothing. The next meal that we have, we eat kosher food, you know, grab an apple, grab kosher food, kosher meat, whatever it is. Um, what, Leah, what do, we, what do we call this? This is mitzah. I don't think I have mitzah. Oh, mitzah! <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I didn't make that. That's brilliant. That's funny. You know, it strikes me of uh, uh, like um, is that that idea of the what do you call it, the noga, the, the mm-hmm. open and the close. There are certain kinds of food, right, that are like if you eat them. I think you can maybe get some energy from them, but your body doesn't fully absorb the nutrients because because they're they're like in a kernel Interesting. or something. Saying so uh, even physically, yeah. even physically. Well, what are they called? Interesting. Yeah, like sort of kind of like, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So so you get some benefit of it, but you don't get the real the full benefit of it. That's because brilliant. it's trapped in the shell. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's a physical parallel, I would right. say, to the spiritual concept. Right. I guess it's a gift from Hashem that even physically we can see a semblance of this idea. Um, yeah. I don't have a question. What if you think it's kosher? Yeah. Mr. Litvich or whatever. Don't worry, it's kosher. It's kosher. Listen, you'll never, there's no end to the chumrot, to the uh, stringencies. There's no end to Jewish diversity within practice. There's no end to that. At, at the end of the day, everyone kind of finds the... Here's the deal. Everyone finds a balance. Wherever you are, there's something that you're not doing. Exactly. That, there's always that balance. So it's like there's a kid's... Uh, I'm going to call it tape because it started off as a tape. But now it's, I don't know, digital file. But the kid's like album. Um, it's called The Marvelous Mitos Machine. I don't know if you guys have ever encountered that. It's... Fantastic. It was produced in the 80s, right after Back to the Future. So it's got like time travel. And the premise is they send a satellite. It's very cool. Send a satellite into orbit. And the satellite picks up anytime people or kids, I think mainly kids, are doing something not not so good. So they beam this information to headquarters. And then the people watching the screens have the ability to communicate, either overtly or subtly, with the people that are about to make, the, the kids are about to make a mistake and through song to correct. So I remember there's one, that's a very elaborate breakdown of the, of the premise. But wait, what did you just mention? Oh, so there was, they, 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 the Midos machine alerts that there's something about to happen. And what, what's happening? There's these kids that are outside by recess in their yeshiva. And they're making fun of kids, other kids from other schools. They're like, oh, those kids come from that school. They, um, they learn English. Like, pfft, oh man, they're like not even Jewish. And then other kids walk by, they're like, oh, they only speak Yiddish. They're so crazy. It's like, what is Judaism to them? It's that perfect balance where exactly they are. But everyone's like, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's human, that's human stuff. That's not, that's not, that's not holy. That's not Torah. That's just people. There's that I'm stricter than you, and therefore this is kosher to me. But then there's also actually that to Sfarim and to Ashkenazim, True. some things are 
an aunt. Right. That's true. Uh, I don't know. We had a big oh, thing. We had right. a big thing this summer. We were like traveling and we went to a, what was it, labeled Kosher Deli. Mm. And there was fresh meat there. But it was not blocked. Interesting. And I, I didn't know what to do with it. Right. Because theoretically, I understand that blot is kosher. Right. And I'm not, we don't keep halibus around. I don't necessarily have, a, me personally, a thing against blot. Not, not blot. Right. But it's not in my community. And I, I never even seen that. i never seen it before. Except for maybe Hebrew National. Right. So, so I didn't know what to do. You know, I was like, I had to call Mark. I called Shao, actually. Nice. Um, but ultimately, he didn't. The only thing I came up with was that I asked him, like, if if I cut this on my grill, would you eat off my grill? Right. He said, no. Right. So right. I was like, I don't want to eat it. Got it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but if you make a Palestrian pizza, an OUD pizza, you wouldn't eat it either. I know, but. Well, right. Look, everyone has standards, right? Yeah. Different. I, I would never say that it's not kosher. I personally wouldn't say it's not kosher. I would always say I either would eat it or I wouldn't eat it. I would never say something is has a hexer. I wouldn't say it's not kosher. It's not not kosher. It's I, I, I have a different standard. By the way, right. So with when it comes to glot, did you did he give you a breakdown of glot? I understand what glot is. Yeah, it's it's the lungs. It's yeah, all about yeah. the lungs. No, I, I, I get the concept. The probably isn't even there. Anymore. But my understanding is also the history of glot is there was a time when a lot of Orthodox Jews ate non-glot. They probably got, didn't have the availability. It got more like strict, right? Somehow, and, and by the way, that's a common thing. Yeah, yeah. Because everyone's looking to up the ante. Right. It's like any relationship. No, you don't want to be stale, so you're always like adding new things, right. adding new rituals. It's like, all right, let's let's right. let's make this more complicated. Okay. <laughs> Coach is not hard enough as it is. Exactly. Anyway. All right, thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. All right. Well, good. Oh, next week. Next week we continue the journey. And the topic is the meat of the issue. Oh, should say meat next week. Uh well, all right. So here's the topic, the meat of the issue. We explained previously that people weren't always permitted to eat animals, and that came after Noah left the ark. And we discussed today some of the significance of kosher animals, but there's more than meets the eye. Not all parts of a kosher animal are kosher to eat. Ah, not all parts of a kosher animal are kosher to eat. Why is that, and what does that mean for us? Same bad time, same bad channel. Next week, meat, where's the beef? All right, Leah, thank you. A delicious tasting menu spread. Yeah.